Welcome to Nomadicate, a podcast all about exploring how different cultures, things, ideas, and even people shape and define our lives and our world. You're listening to your host, Katie DeVille, and today we're going to be talking about espionage, more specifically, female espionage. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the origins and earliest accounts of spying, the appearance and the role of the first female spies, learn about one woman who slipped undercover during World War II, and explore how American, Chinese, and Russian female spies impact our world today. Thanks for dropping in to Nomadicate, and thanks for choosing to be a global citizen. If you enjoyed my last episode, please consider leaving me a like and a review, because that would be kind of incredible. But anyway, without any further ado, let's dive in. So, what is even espionage? Well, I don't know about you, but I grew up on Spy Kids and Kim Possible, and I had this really big phase of buying spy gear from Toys R Us and, like, booby-trapping my entire house to counterattack my three older brothers. It was for the sake of self-defense. Of course. Well, maybe it was sometimes for the sake of sabotage, but whatever. Anyway, to me, at the age of eight, spying was the art of secretly and stylishly gathering information and using my creativity to somehow turn that information into strategic warfare. I was kind of intense for a kid, but basically, espionage is the process of securing secret information, whether it be for commercial, political, military, or other purposes. And it's usually obtained through the use of spies, secret agents, or illegal monitoring devices. Fun fact, it's considered by many to be the world's second oldest profession. And apparently, spies and secret agents aren't the same. Both can be motivated by various reasons, but spies tend to receive little formal training and pass secret information to intelligence organizations. They can be anyone really from a high-ranking official to a humble servant. Secret agents, on the other hand, are either recruited by an intelligence agency or volunteer secret information to that agency. And they're typically protected by a handler. A handler is a case officer who deals with, or as they would say, handle agents on a specific operation. However, for the sake of this episode, we'll use the two terms interchangeably if needed, since they're basically the same. But espionage is usually aggressive in nature and employs illegal methods to gather information. For these reasons, it can be slightly different from intelligence gathering. According to Harry Howe Ransom and Robert W. Pringle in a Britannica article, intelligence on a political scale refers to the collection, analysis, and distribution of information relating to the power, ventures, and likely courses of actions of non-state actors in other countries. The term intelligence can also refer to covered action, which is the secret intervention in a country or non-state actors' economic or political affairs. Covered operations conceal the sponsor of the operation, rather than concealing the operation itself. Think of assassinations or sabotage. More likely than not, if you're the leader behind one of those operations, you wouldn't be too keen for the world to know who you are, 
like the old saying goes, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Without intelligence, countries would be at an extreme power disadvantage and wouldn't have enough information to optimize their decision-making regarding foreign policy, national security, and self-defense. To me, espionage seems less organized than intelligence gathering. But for the sake of this episode, again, we'll use espionage and intelligence interchangeably, because more or less, they're the same thing. So, what are the earliest accounts of espionage? When did the female spy appear? And what exactly was her role throughout history in a political and economic world dominated by men? Well, if we think about this in an intuitive sense, spies must have appeared once early people groups started to form. Because everyone has secrets, and if you want power or security, you're going to have to get information without others knowing. Let's think of an imaginary prehistoric tribe. You're the leader of the tribe, and you have the most resources, whether it be all the coconuts, doubloons, the most genetically blessed partner, or whatever. The point is, people want what you have. The only way to ensure that someone won't overthrow, kill you, or take all your coconuts is to have an unsuspecting person in the tribe to observe and listen for people who might have bad will against you. And this is only speculation, because we didn't always have the written word. The first written language, called cuneiform, appeared in Sumer Mesopotamia around 3500 BCE. Think of modern-day Kuwait and Iraq. In Mesoamerica, the Maya developed writing as early as 500 BCE, and in China, writing appeared around 1200 BCE. So, trying to pinpoint exactly when espionage came into play is nearly impossible. But theoretically, espionage might have been developed as soon as language appeared, which was approximately 50,000 to 150,000 years ago. But according to my research, espionage can be found documented throughout the ancient world. According to Adrian Wilmoth Lerner's article, Espionage and Intelligence, Early Historical Evidence, the ancient Egyptians were one of the pioneers of the craft. They documented the use of court spies and hieroglyphs, and early Egyptian pharaohs were known to use special agents to identify traitors and possible communities to conquer and enslave. Ancient Egyptian spies also developed spycraft and methods that are still known to this day. Remember that mysterious trick ink that we all, well, at least I wanted so badly growing up? Well, the ancient Egyptians were apparently one of the first to develop disappearing and invisible ink. I scoured the internet to find out more about this and how they exactly created it, but unfortunately, I couldn't find anything. But anyway, they were also one of the first to develop codes, cleverly disguise messages and articles of clothing and other items, and develop poisons from toxic plants and snakes to carry out assassinations and sabotage. But anyway, eventually around 1000 BC, the use of Egyptian espionage shifted to foreign intelligence as ancient Greece and Rome grew in power. And espionage in Egypt wasn't isolated. Ancient Greece, the Middle East, Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul, as well as China and Rome, heavily relied on espionage. As wars began to break out between around 1500 and 1200 BC, 
Greece had to implement new intelligence operations and rely on deception to gain the upper hand in military ploys. The Trojan horse, although most likely a myth, is a symbol of how early Greece valued espionage and deception. And as democratic Greek city-states developed, rulers would send spies to rival city-states to obtain information regarding their military power. They also developed highly efficient communication systems between cities through couriers. In addition to couriers, the ancient Greeks also used semaphore. Semaphore is a communication system using signals to transfer messages, and the ancient Greeks employed it using towers and outposts. In the Middle East, and then in Byzantium, early intelligence agencies were formed by the large government bureaucracies. They used civilian agents who would slyly secure information from traders, sailors, merchants, and other businessmen regarding military and or economic affairs. And there are many accounts of espionage in other parts of the ancient world as well. 5th century documents report espionage being used in the Indus Valley. Think of modern-day Pakistan, areas of northern India, eastern Afghanistan, and southeastern Iran as early as 2,500 years ago, which is really old. And in China, Sun Tzu, which I think is how you pronounce his name, emphasized the importance of espionage in his book, The Art of War, dedicating three chapters to the subject of spying. According to Sun Tzu, there is no place where espionage is not possible. And that includes Rome. Having the largest empire of the ancient world, intelligence operations, or say, forces, were extremely critical to ensure the governance of the empire. Just like previous civilizations, Rome would have agents reporting on military, political, and economic threats, both internally and externally of the empire. The agents would bribe tribal organizations, creating an incentive to form an alliance with the government. And it wasn't unknown for spies and the secret police force to eavesdrop in the forum and public markets. But enough with the origins of espionage, because that was a lot. Where do the women come in, and what was the role of the female spy? Well, as our beloved Elastigirl would say from Incredibles, who is more of a superhero rather than a spy, but nevertheless, she said, Girls, come on. Leave the saving the world to the men? I don't think so. I don't think so. That was my impression of Elastigirl. I thought it was okay. Anyway, I love the sentiment, and I'm sure many female spies throughout history were driven by patriotism, adventure, and the sort of kick-ass attitude. But the first female spies were more likely than not just pretty pawns in a men's kingdom. Think of all the fictional female spies represented in popular culture today. All the James Bond gals, Jane Smith from Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and even Wonder Woman, who also doubles as a superhero. Female spies in entertainment tend to share one thing in common, extreme sex appeal. More often than not, in female spy plots, there tends to be themes of the femme fatale and sex espionage. Femme fatale, meaning deadly woman in French, is a popular female archetype in art, literature, and film. The femme fatale is a knockout, known to use her seductive and mysterious nature to entice and trick men into lethal situations. Sexpionage 
is a real method of espionage where sex, or the possibility of sex, is used to compromise an opponent and gain valuable information. Intelligence forces can use sexpionage as a cover story, distraction, and or incentive. A common example of this is the honey trap, but we'll dive into that at the end of the episode. But the fictional characters mentioned above use their feminine traits to capture and sometimes divert the attention of their male counterparts, therefore gaining a strategic advantage in their ploys. And I hate to admit it, but you can even find sexualization of the female spy or even just tough female characters in Disney. Arguably, an example of this is Kim Possible. I know, I know. I don't want to attack this childhood favorite because we were all so obsessed with this cartoon growing up. And I even dressed as Kim Possible for last Halloween. But admittedly, she sort of fits into this female spy cliche. Kim Possible is supposed to be a 16-year-old spy. But we have to admit she looks completely grown up and she acts completely grown up. She appears to be at least in her 20s, and while I don't remember her being explicitly sexual in the show, the creators were very intentional about augmenting her sex appeal, making her clothing arguably revealing for a 16-year-old. If you take a look at Disney's live-action version of Kim Possible today, the creators definitely turned it down, even ditching Kim's famous crop top. So, where does this sexy female spy archetype come from? Well, we can all agree that society has been hypersexualizing women for like, ever. And the representation of the female spy in entertainment is actually a reflection of how society, and more particularly men, viewed and valued women throughout history. Militaries, governments, councils, and bureaucracies were entirely composed of males, and sadly enough, these positions in these domains are still male-dominated. Throughout history, Respectable women were limited to fairly domestic roles in society. Unrespectable women, usually of the lower class, took on sex work. And female sex workers might just have been among the first bona fide female spies. Ancient Egypt was the rare exception to the misogyny. There, women exercised a surprising amount of freedom and power for the time, having the ability to become physicians, workshop managers, textile manufacturers, beer brewers, property owners, scribes, priests, and servants. They could marry who they liked and could even divorce their partners if they wanted. In general, ancient Egyptian women held relative legal and social equality with men. But this was unusual for the ancient world. In ancient Rome, for example, women were considered less than men. Women were governed by their fathers, husbands, and male guardians. They were married off young, sometimes even before puberty, and the roles outside of the home were limited to working in agriculture, doing handicrafts, working markets, and working as nurses and wet nurses. Proper women were expected to care for the home and children, and bring respect to their husbands by being modest and chaste before marriage. In Roman society, women were thought to have poor judgment and were incapable of managing affairs. Therefore, they couldn't participate in voting, political assemblies, or hold positions in government. To show the extent of this, here's a quote from Cato the Elder, an ancient Roman senator, soldier, and historian. He said, Woman is a violent and uncontrolled animal. 
If you allow them to achieve complete equality with men, do you think they will be easier to live with? Not at all. Once they have achieved equality, they will become your masters. I know Cato the Elder didn't have a British accent, but I couldn't resist sprinkling a little bit of theatrics in there. But that mindset is so stupid, right? And other than being good wives and working respectable commonplace jobs, like the ones we talked about, the only other options for women at the time were largely sex work and waitressing. And women working in these occupations possessed even fewer legal rights and had less social respect. In ancient Greece, women were held in practically the same regard, reared to be good caretakers and engage in typical handicraft activities. The other women, outside of this respectable life, were likely prostitutes. But this is where it gets interesting. Remember how I mentioned that espionage was considered by many to be the world's first occupation? Well, prostitution is considered the first occupation, and they complement each other pretty well. It's possible that prostitutes could have been some of the first female spies, and maybe this is why films and novels press the femme fatale archetype, and maybe this is where sexpionage came from. Since there's little historical documentation and research on the origins of female spies, a lot of this is just speculation. However, in Rosie Anderson's article, Invisible Women, Spies in Ancient Rome, Greece, and Persia, the author talks about how women prostitutes were able to draw secret information out of their clients, more than others most likely could. From the mouth of Oscar Wilde, everything in the world is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. And while I don't know if this quote widely holds true today, the ancient world did view women as sexual tools for pleasure and child-rearing. Because of this, women actually had a lot of unsuspecting quiet power. However, it's important to note that, like we talked about earlier, women, especially prostitutes, possessed very few legal rights. So, it's possible they were threatened and abused by their handlers in many cases. Other than prostitutes, Anderson claims that respectable women make good spies too. In a segregated society, women could spy on other women. They could also spy as slaves and servants in the households of prestigious families, where their presence was undervalued. In Rome, I'm sure that women were spying in the forum or in markets. According to my knowledge, it wasn't really until the First World War that we started seeing cases of trained, institutionalized female spies, and even then, sexuality and sensuality still played a role. Heck, even today, real intelligence forces are still using sex as a weapon, a distraction, and a tool to get secret information. So, who's a notable lady who slipped undercover? Well, there's plenty of them, but I found it extremely difficult to find specific accounts of female spies in the ancient world, so we'll focus on a 20th century account. One woman, named Nancy Wake, was one of the best and one of the most impactful female spies in World War II. In a YouTube video entitled Nancy Wake, The White Mouse Was the Gestapo's Most Wanted, published by Biographics, Nancy was born in Wellington, New Zealand in 1912. She later relocated with her parents to Sydney, Australia at the age of two. And Nancy possessed a strong inclination for adventure and had a healthy kick of rebellion. So at 16 years old, 
she ran away from home to become a nurse. Not long after, Nancy inherited 200 pounds from an aunt, which today accounts for roughly 11,500 pounds. She took this money, traveled to New York where she partied it up big time during the Prohibition, and then later went to London to start a career in journalism. She took journalism classes and managed to get her first writing gig at 20 years old, through pretty deceitful practices. She lied to the hiring manager, claiming she studied Egyptology and knew Arabic, none of which were true. Nevertheless, the hiring manager believed and hired her, marking the true start of her career. Eventually, she moved to Paris, became fluent in French, landed freelance gigs around the country, and married a rather wealthy Frenchman. Life was very luxurious for Nancy, but things started to change when she witnessed the horrors of the Nazis. When she traveled to Vienna for work, she saw Jews tied to a large will, being brutally beaten by Nazi soldiers. At this moment, Nancy felt obligated to fight against these atrocities if the opportunity ever arose. And it did. It started out rather small, with her and her husband delivering messages and helping soldiers from anti-Nazi organizations widely known as the French Resistance. However, little by little, Nancy became a more critical ally. She became involved in an escape network and hosted a safe house for soldiers and refugees traveling an escape line called the Pat O'Leary Line. Pat O'Leary was an alias for Albert Gurris, who helped more than 600 Allied airmen and soldiers flee to Spain from France. Nancy was an important asset to the resistance for a few reasons. Not only did she have a lot of money to help fund the resistance, she had a keen sense of intuition and could read people's character and intentions extremely well, giving her the ability to identify Nazi spies before anyone else could. She was also stunning, and she appeared to be like this delicate French housewife, making her unthreatening and unsuspecting to the enemy. And I'm going to quote again from Oscar Wilde. He said, A strength of women is their illusion of weakness. A weakness of men is their illusion of strength. For the case of Nancy Wake and many women spies during the time, this held to be true and worked in their favor. She rode her bike in public, carrying secret messages and pamphlets in her shopping basket to lead or distribute, going unnoticed by Nazi soldiers. She was also a key organizer of a gel bust, successfully helping her friend escape a Nazi prison by sending him a Nazi uniform. Nancy also had several encounters with Nazi spies, but she was able to remain unsuspecting and was overlooked. However, the Gestapo, the secret state police of the Nazis, eventually grew aware of an unidentified woman tied to the French resistance, who had successful operations like hiding people away, organizing gel bust, and helping communicate critical information to ally forces. In 1943, Nancy became one of the Gestapo's most wanted, and they put a 5 million franc bounty on her. She was also given the nickname the White Mouse because of her ability to escape. At this point, she had to get out of France, and she made the tough decision to leave her husband behind. Sadly, on a train, she was outed for having false identification and was arrested by the Gestapo. She was beaten and interrogated. Dun dun dun. But luckily, the Nazis didn't know that she was the white mouse. Being the clever lady that she was, Nancy had a backstory. She claimed she was leaving her husband to join her lover, and she needed false identification to start a new life. 
With the help of her friend, Pat O'Leary, pretending to be her lover in order to back up the story, Nancy was freed after four days and fled to England. There, Nancy joined Winston Churchill's organization, the Special Operations Executive, also known as the SOE, and went to Scotland to begin official spy training with other recruits as D-Day approached. She was trained in combat, driven by her extreme desire to physically fight Nazis. And she became so skilled and so strong, she killed a Nazi with a karate chop to the neck and a kick to the balls. Definitely a double whammy. But anyway, after training, she returned to France by way of parachuting herself out of a plane. Once she landed, her mission was to organize and align the Marquis with the SOE. The Marquis were unorganized bands of French and Belgian guerrilla fighters, determined to conquer the Nazis by surprise attacks and brutal force. To gain the men's respect, Nancy had whiskey flown into the forest camp by the SOE, among other critical supplies like ammunition, (laughs) makeup, and new silk stockings. She challenged the men to a drinking contest. Paired with her good looks, strong stomach, and fiery attitude, she won the hearts of the dudes and they ended up respecting her. But her contribution to the resistance and the SOE doesn't end there. An important radio was intentionally destroyed because its operator feared he may be captured after having been caught in crossfire between the resistance and the Nazis. This was detrimental because without a way to communicate with the British, thousands of men were likely going to end up dead. Nancy volunteered to ride her bike 200 kilometers away to use another radio. She would then communicate their dire situation and their need for a replacement radio. This couldn't be done by car because it was too obvious and the likelihood of being caught was high. The trip took a few days, and she would periodically stop to refresh her makeup. At every Nazi checkpoint, she would skillfully flirt with the officers. Nancy Wake made a big contribution in the war, and is relatively unknown to the public. Despite her being given numerous awards by various countries, such as the U.S. Medal of Freedom, the Legion of Honor and the Croix de Guerre from France, and the Badge of Honor from New Zealand, as well as the Honor of Australia. And while she fought and survived the Nazis and received all these medals, her story doesn't end completely happily. Nancy had a dream that her husband, Henry, was captured by the Nazis and killed in a firing squad. Sadly, her premonition apparently came true on the exact same day. Henry had been captured and tortured by the Nazis in attempts to confirm that Nancy was the White Mouse. But Henry was loyal and never revealed her identity. What a great guy. Eventually, Nancy auctioned off her war medals, using the money to finance her retirement. She later moved back to London and settled into the Stafford Hotel at the age of 88, where she planned to live until her death. But her retirement funds eventually ran low, and she was planning to have to part ways with the sweet life. Luckily, Prince Charles of Wales learned of her situation and covered the bill until her passing at age 98 in 2011. Nancy's life of adventure started very young, and she led a valuable, exciting life, driven by passion, courage, and ambition, which ultimately saved thousands of lives. She is one of the many female heroes in history that don't get enough recognition. I'd also like to mention that there tends to be a focus on Western heroes in general, especially during World War II, but I'd really love to learn more specifically about female spy heroes from other cultures. I'll make an Instagram post where you can comment on women that went undercover and shaped history for better or for worse. So, 
What role does female intelligence play in today's turbulent political environment? Well, the Chinese spy balloon shot down off the coast of South Carolina in February 2023 reminds us that espionage is definitely a very real affair of governments. Before concluding our episode, I'd like to briefly look at how America, China, and Russia utilize the female spy, as these countries are the current main political powers. According to an AP News article by Deb Reichman, women accounted for 39% of American intelligence professionals, while men accounted for 61% in 2019. This data was collected by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, pulling information from the CIA, also known as the Central Intelligence Agency, and also more than a dozen American spy agencies. The CIA has been actively trying to diversify their workforce, both trying to bring in women and minorities in. And they've made progress. In an NBC News article, Robert Windrum reports that in 2019, the agency's top three directorates became led by women, which was a huge milestone. In 2018, Gina Haspel, who has a controversial reputation regarding interrogation techniques, was appointed as the director of the CIA, making her the CIA's first woman director ever. She served until 2021. According to Windrum, women comprised nearly 50% of the CIA's 2019 workforce, which is pretty close to the end goal of equality. For the sake of time, I can't dive into any specific profiles or accounts, but for those who are interested, Google the Sisterhood of Spies, a unit of female agents largely responsible for locating Osama bin Laden. China has an investigation agency that's similar to the U.S.'s CIA and FBI. It's called the MSS, or the Ministry of State Security. According to Wikipedia, the MSS is the People's Republic of China's main non-military secret police, intelligence, and security agency. The agency is really good at covert operations, cyber espionage, and commercial espionage. It's based in Beijing, and it has been widely regarded as one of the world's most secretive intelligence organizations. And because of this secrecy, I couldn't really find out workforce data relating to the MSS. And not surprisingly, it was also difficult to find out what percentage of women worked in one of Russia's main intelligence agencies, called the Foreign Intelligence Service, also known as the CVR. According to Alice Murphy in an Independence article, the CVR is responsible for espionage and intelligence activities outside of the Russian Federation. It's based in Moscow, and it's the successor of the KGB. The KGB, also known as the Committee for State Security, was the Soviet Union's main security agency from 1954 to 1991. Vladimir Putin, Russia's current president, which we all know by now, served as one of the KGB's special agents during the 1980s. Anyway, point being, it was hard to find ways in which women are involved in China and Russia's intelligence units. But what I did find was both governments strongly use an investigative practice called honey trapping. The honey trap, according to Wikipedia, involves using a trapper, an attractive person, usually woman, of course, who makes contact with a person, who possesses critical resources and or information needed by a third party. The trapper will then allure the individual into a fake romantic or sexual relationship in order to either influence the person or obtain information. 
One example of this is Maria Adela Kafelt Rivera. The Russian honey trap spy established a false identity as a socialite jeweler based in Naples. And she managed to seduce one of NATO's members of staff and infiltrate its command offices by becoming a secretary, according to Tim Hanlon in his article on the website Mirror. Russia's use of honey trapping dates back to the Soviet Union, and it's very much practiced today. Before concluding our episode, I'd like to make clear that I'm not intentionally glamorizing espionage and its sometimes violent methods. Espionage is a real tool of governments, and they use it for both evil and good. Wars and other forms of violence in association are unfortunate and sickening realities that are sometimes unavoidable in government affairs. It should never be romanticized or glorified unless it's fighting for people's lives and rights. The goal of this episode was to solely investigate the origins of espionage, to display the power inequality between men and women throughout history, and explore how women began taking a more institutionalized role in their country's intelligence agendas later on. And this episode in no way aims to negatively associate country's citizens to its government. With the involvement of both men and women, the U.S. and other Western countries have committed horrendous war crimes, just as Russia and China have. And I don't believe in stereotyping people based on their nationality and the actions of their governments. With that being said, that concludes our second episode. If you liked this episode, please consider leaving a like and a review. Again, you're listening to Nomadicate, and I'm your host, Katie Devell. Thank you for joining me today. And subscribe if you want to take your global citizenship to the next level and learn even more about our beautiful big world and some of the things and people that influence it. Thanks for being a global citizen, and thanks for tuning in. Bye for now, and remember to stay curious.